If you got your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 14, and we will be in verses 1 through 11. <clears throat> Luke chapter 14, verses 1 through 11, as we continue our journey through the parables. Today we're going to cover the parable of the guests. It's always a hard word to say for me, the guests. Um, I want to begin this morning, as you're turning there, with a little bit of a, a history lesson. Um, as we've been going through the parables and, and spending a lot of time in the Gospels, you find this group coming up over and over again called the Pharisees, right? And, and we just we all know who they are. We, we, we hear about them a lot. We see them show up in the, in the Bible. And, and we might ask ourselves, well, who are these, who are these people? And, and in fact, one of the things you'll find, if you go to the Old Testament, you will never find the Pharisees mentioned. And the reason for that is they, they weren't in the Old Testament. They didn't exist in the Old Testament. They actually <clears throat> rose to prominence during what's called the intertestamental period. Now let me explain what that is. The old, if you open your Old Testament, you go to the last book of the Old Testament, it's Malachi. Malachi was the last Old Testament prophet. And then the next prophet to come along is a man by the name of John the Baptist. And in between Malachi and John the Baptist is 400 years. Now think about that for a second. Think about uh, from 1600 to now. That's how long it took. This is called the intertestamental period. This is the 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Okay. Now this is also known as the 400 silent years because during this 400 years there is no prophecy at all. Think about the Old Testament. You got this great tradition, men like Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah and, and Micah and Malachi, and all of a sudden, boom, it's over. Nothing. 400 years go by, and there's absolutely no prophet in Israel. And, and the other thing that's going on during this 400 years is there's huge changes going on within Israel itself, both governmentally and socially and, and culturally. Uh, starting about 500 B.C., Israel is under the rule of the kingdom or the empire of Persia. And, and, and this goes on, and you'll read about this. For example, if you go to Daniel, you'll hear Daniel talk about Darius, king of Persia. That's because they had been, they had been um, uh, conquered by, by Persia. Now, the Persians allowed the Jews to practice their religion. They actually allowed, if you go back and read Ezra and Nehemiah, it was King Darius or one of the Persian kings that allowed them to go back to Israel and start rebuilding the wall and rebuilding the, the, the temple. Then around 300 B.C., so the first hundred years of the intertestamental period, they're under the, this kingdom of Persia. Then around 300 B.C., this guy comes along by the name of Alexander the Great. And he conquers pretty much the whole known world and brings Greek rule to, to Israel. Now, Alexander, if you go back and watch, he's a student of Aristotle. He's a student of Greek philosophy, Greek politics. And he requires that Greek culture be instituted in all of the conquered lands, that it has to be promoted. So all of a sudden, around 300 B.C. in Israel, you've got all this Greek culture coming in. The Greek gods are being taught. They're setting up... Uh, all this Greek culture within Jerusalem and when, within Israel. Now, Alexander, he did allow religious freedom for the Jews, which was a good thing, 
but he also really promoted the Greek culture, he, the Hellenistic culture, which was a bad thing because it was very worldly, it was very humanistic, it was very ungodly. So you had all this stuff going on. And by the way, keep in mind, there's no prophet. Everybody with me? There, there's no Isaiah to step up and say, guys, that's wrong. God is completely silent for this 400 years. Then around 63 B.C., Pompey of Rome comes in and conquers Israel again, and now Israel is under the control of the Roman Caesars. So during this 400 years, you've got the Persian culture, you've got the Greek culture, and now you've got the Roman culture. And again, there's no voice of God. There's no king uh, that's appointed by God. God is completely silent during this 400 years. So keep in mind, you've got 400 years, four centuries, and there's no prophetic voice. There's a vacuum of leadership. The people don't know what to do. The people don't know where to turn. And, and in this vacuum, three groups arise <clears throat> to fill this vacuum of leadership. They are the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Zealots. Now, the Pharisees were what we would call the fundamentalists. Okay? Think about Amish today. They were the Amish or the Mennonites. They, they kind of withdrew You know, if the Greeks say do this, they would withdraw. So they taught a very strict interpretation uh, of Judaism to counter the influence of those other cultures. Now, interestingly, they're made up mostly of lay people. There's not a lot of priests that are Pharisees. There's not a lot of uh, Levites that are Pharisees. They're mostly just lay people. And you had this other group that arose, and they were mostly made up of priests and and lawyers and scribes and people like that, they were the Sadducees, and they weren't fundamentalists at all. In fact, they, they greatly admired the Greek culture. They, they greatly admired all of, that, all of that stuff. And so that was this group, and they kind of represented the wealthy and the, and the well-to-do, and they were kind of like uh, get-along kind of people, you know, they didn't want to rock the boat or anything like that. And then the third group is what's called the Zealots, and they're basically the terrorists. I mean, literally, they were the terrorists of that day. They went around stabbing Romans and trying to, to foment rebellion. By the way, one of the disciples, <clears throat> anybody remember his name was a zealot? Simon. He was out of this group. He was a terrorist, and, and, and Jesus chose him and said, I choose you. And, and Simon the zealot became one of the disciples of, of, of Jesus. So you've got these three groups, and, and they're going along, during the, and they're rising to power, and they're, they're, they're kind of vying for the, for the love of the people. And some of the people are going with the Pharisees and some of the people are going with the Sadducees and some of the people are, are, are signing up with the Zealots. And this all goes along and, and of course, Jesus comes along and he, is, he lives and dies and is resurrected. Then about 70 A.D., something happens. The, the uh, Sadducee, the, the temple is destroyed, okay, in 70 A.D. The Romans come in, they siege the temple and they completely destroy it. And by the way, if you go to Israel today, all that's left is a piece of a wall. 2,000 years, that, that all goes back to 70 A.D. Now, remember, the Sadducees are made up of who? They're mostly made up of priests and Levites. So when the temple is destroyed, they're done. And they, they literally disappear from, from history. The Zealots, they hang around for a few more decades causing trouble. But then around 135 A.D., there's this huge revolt in Israel called the Bar Kokhba Revolt. And the Romans just come in and literally kill probably three or four hundred thousand Jews. They just wipe them out. I mean, they, they completely disperse them 
and the zealots are, they disappear from history. There is no more rebellion in Israel after that. So by the time you get to the middle of the second century, the only ones left are the Pharisees. Sadducees are gone, the zealots are gone. So the Pharisees become the dominant Jewish leadership. They actually go on to codify all their traditions in, in, a, in a book or a group of writings called the Mishnah, which seals their leadership. And so from the second century on, Phariseeism is Judaism. And if you go to Israel today and you find Orthodox Jews, they are basically remnants of the Pharisees. So, so what I want you to see is Pharisees have been around a long, long, long time. And they rose to prominence in that 400 years before the New Testament. Now, when Jesus comes along, what we do know about their religion of the Pharisees, it was all on the outside. It didn't really have anything to do with their heart. It it didn't change them on the inside. You remember in Matthew 23, Jesus calls them whitewashed tombs. He said, on the outside, you're all pretty and fixed up and painted, but on the inside, you're full of rottenness and dead men's bones because their religion was all about the, about the outside. So Jesus comes along, and one of the things you'll see in the gospel, he's, he's always in conflict with the Pharisees. Now, why? Well, there's a lot of reasons, but one of the things, remember, they rose to prominence because there's no voice of God. Are you with me? And then this man comes along, and what does he say? I'm sent from God. I'm sent from the Father. And the, and, and the Bible makes statements like this. He taught at, with authority, not like the Pharisees. Remember that? So the people are going out in droves to Jesus. And the Pharisees, first and foremost, they're jealous because their whole status, they've risen to promise, prominence because of a vacuum of the voice of God. And now here comes this man and all the people are going to him. So they want to get rid of him because he's a threat to their power. He's a threat to their status because he says, I'm speaking on behalf of, of the Father. Now, today's passage in Luke 14, and you can go ahead and turn there if you're not there yet, is, is another one of the conflicts between Jesus and the Pharisees. Okay, So we'll start in Luke 14, verse 1. It says, One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. So we're, we're on the Sabbath back then, as we all know, this was a Saturday. So they've probably gone to synagogue and one of the Pharisees invites, says, hey Jesus, come over to my house and, and eat. So they, after the synagogue, after church, they go over to this Pharisee's house and, they, and they're going to sit down for a meal. But notice those last words there. You see, he's been invited to eat at the house of a Pharisee and he accepts the invitation but their, their invitation is not born of goodwill. They're not, there, they're not there to honor Him. They're not there to do anything like that. They're there to discredit Him. You see, what they want to show the people is they're always trying to show He's not from God because He breaks the law. See, if they can prove He's breaking the law, they can show the people He's not from God. And that's always what they're trying to do is discredit Him because He threatens their place in society. So they're lo- always looking for opportunity. So on this day, look at verse 2. Remember, it's the Sabbath, and it says, And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. Now, dropsy comes from the old French word hydropsy, which comes from the Greek word hydrops, which means, hydro means what? Water. Now today, dropsy would be called edema. 
Okay, it's still around today. Now, basically what it is, it's an unnatural collection of water in the body. Somebody's got liver disease or kidney disease or heart disease, and what happens is they can't get fluid. So fluid can collect in their legs. Fluid can collect in their stomach cavities. Back then it's called dropsy. Today it's called uh, edema. So they got this guy that's there on this day, and he's got liver disease or kidney disease or heart disease. Nobody knows, but basically he's collecting fluid. And it could be in his legs. It could be in his stomach. We don't know. We just know he has dropsy. Now, here's a question. I always ask these questions of myself. Why is this man there? Was he invited? Was he brought there? Was he, in other words, was he a plant? Did they bring him there just so that Jesus would try to heal him on that day and break the law? Now, I don't know for sure because the Bible doesn't tell you, but I can tell you one thing. The Pharisees were notoriously insular. In other words, they hung out with people that looked like them and acted like them and believed like them. They saw themselves as spiritually superior and they didn't like to hang around the riffraff. Now, you might ask, well, what does having dropsy have to do with being a sinner or being riffraff. Well, if you, I went out and looked at a book. There's a book out there called Illness and Health in the Jewish Tradition, Writings from the Bible to Today. And I found these quotes. I don't know if y'all can read them. Um, I can't read them either. I got to get my glasses on. It says this. this. These are writings of rabbis during that time. Rabbi Naaman B. Isaac said, dropsy is a sign of sin. Uh, other rabbis taught there are three kinds of dropsy. That which was, is punishment of sin is thick, and it goes on. You see, they saw dropsy or edema as a sign. You must have, you, you're sinning. So if you had some kind of disease like that, they didn't want nothing to do with you because it had to be something bad happened to you because you've done something. Everybody with me? So, so that guy would not have been there on a normal day. They, the, the, the Pharisees would have seen him as unclean. They would have seen him as a sinner. They would have seen him as a man under the judgment of God. There would be no reason for him to be at that dinner. So with that in mind, it's easy for me to believe that the only reason they brought him there, the only reason he's in the room, is part of some kind of uh, a plan to discredit Jesus. So look at verses 3 through 4. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? He always puts the question to them. Now, just so you understand, okay, you can go to the Old Testament, go to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you can read it from beginning to end, and there is nothing in there that says you cannot heal on the Sabbath. Nothing. Okay? There, there's no prohibition to heal on the Sabbath. And they know that. He's, he's asking them. Notice he says, is it lawful? He's, he's saying, does the law teach that? And they, they, they can't answer that because they know what the answer is. And look at verse 4. It says they remained silent because they knew the answer. The answer is no. It's, it's, there's no prohibition against that. And it says Jesus took him and healed him and sent him away. So, so when, he, when Jesus heals the man, he's not breaking the law of God. What he's doing is he's breaking their tradition that they've set up. Everybody with me? So he's, he's not breaking the law of God, but he's breaking their tra- tradition. Look at verses 5 through 6. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? They could not reply to these things. Now I want you to notice, I just love Jesus. I've always said, 
The reason I chose to go through the parables is because there's not a communicator better than Jesus. There's nobody like Him. And I want you to watch His play on words. Does everybody see the play on words? Remember, a dropsy is all about having a condition where your body retains what? Water. Notice what He says. What if your ox fell in a a well? You see, what He's saying, He's saying this, Do you think I'm breaking your law to heal this man who is drowning in water in his body? But if you had an ox or a child or something that fell in a well and was drowning, you'd pull him out. See the play on words there? See, you'd get him out because you love your son, you, your ox is valuable, you'd pull him out, but you won't let this man who's drowning in water in his body, you won't let me heal him on the Sabbath? And what's wrong with y'all? That's what he's doing. So now, at this point, this kind of just sets the scene. At this point, we found out, you know, they've been watching Jesus, but while they're watching him to catch him, What they don't know is he's watching them. Look at verse 7. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor. See, they're watching him trying to catch him and the whole time he's sitting there and he's watching them. And notice, he's not watching what they're wearing. He's not watching what they're saying. He's not watching any of that. He's watching how they're acting with one another. And he says he noticed that when it came to the table... They chose places of of honor. You see, they're watching him trying to catch him violating the law, but he's watching them so they'll reveal what's in their heart. So they'll reveal who they are. And he finally sees it, he says, when they chose the places of honor. Now, in that day, it it would be typical for them in a a, a meal like this to have some kind of long table. And remember, that day they didn't have chairs, they reclined, right? They would sit on pillows and things like that around this table. Now, the host would always sit at the end of the, of the table, right? And the, what would happen is the most important guest would sit near the host. So the closer you were to the host, the more important you were, the more honor you had. If you were down at the other end of the table, man, you were, you, something was wrong, Right? So when it came time to sit down, they literally would, Jesus is watching them and they're, you know, they're, they're pushing each other out of the way and they're all trying to get near the table because that, that, mean, that meant everything to these guys. Importance and honor. They just ate that stuff up. Look at Matthew 23, 5 through 7. Jesus said this about the Pharisees. They do all their deeds to be seen by other people. They make their phylacteries broad. By the way, their phylacteries are like these things on their robes like these fringes they would tie, put on their robes, and they want, them, they want everybody to see them. They make their phylacteries broad, they make their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feast, and they love the best seats in the synagogue, and they love the greetings in the marketplace, and they love being called teacher. They love that stuff. They eat it up, man. It's everything to them to be seen as important, to be seen as, as, as men, of, as honorable men. So here they are at this dinner, and they're doing what they always do. Luke 14, 7, say it again. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, Kathy and I years ago, and she'll, she can tell you the story, we went to a wedding. And you know how at a wedding, they, after the wedding they had a reception, and they always do the tables, and they put your nameplates on the tables? And there was a lady there who got put at a table far away from the bride and groom. And she made a big fuss about that at the wedding. 
because she felt like she should have been. Everybody with me? She should, that's what's going on with these guys. They want to be up front. They, they don't want to be down at the other end of the table because it means everything to them. Look at verses 8 through 9. Jesus tells a parable. He said this, When you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, don't sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the low place, so that when your host may come to you and say, Friend, move up higher, then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. So he, he tells a little parable, and he says, Look, if you have a situation like this, don't go sit in the place of honor, because then you take the chance that the host may come and say, Excuse me, you're in the wrong place. You need to go back there. And that's about as shameful as it gets, right? He says, do the other thing. Go sit in the low place, and then the coast can come get you, and everybody, you can walk by everybody while they, you know, hey. <laughs> right? That, that's, what he's, that's what he's telling them to do. Now, here's the question. Is Jesus, is he just giving them good advice on social etiquette? Is he just teaching them how to be a better, uh, better hypocrite? No. Look at verse 7. He told a what? It's a parable. This isn't wisdom. This isn't social advice. This isn't about etiquette. This is about the kingdom of God. It's a parable, and parables are always about the kingdom of God. See, the fact that it's called a parable tells us that because we've, we've studied that over and over and over. Now, by the way, is this good advice? Is it wise advice for, for social situations? Sure it is. In fact, it's so wise that Solomon has already taught it in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 25, 6 through 7. Solomon said this thousands of years before, Do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great. For it's better to be told, come up here, than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. Solomon said that long time ago before Jesus came along. That's, that's good wisdom. That's good advice, but that's not what Jesus is interested in. He's interested in teaching a lesson about life in the kingdom of God. And in the kingdom of God, the lesson he's teaching is this. Self-promotion will lead to shame, while humility leads to honor. It's not like the world. It's the opposite of the world. If you're out there in the world, then self-promote yourself. Do whatever you got to do. But in the kingdom of God, it's completely different. In the kingdom of God, self-promotion always leads you to shame. Humility, humility leads you to a place of honor. Again, this is is about clamoring for a place in the kingdom of God, at God's table, only to be told by God, get out of that seat. You don't belong there. I mean, who wants that, right? And, And Jesus wraps all this up and gives the meaning of this in verse 11. He says this, For everyone who exalts himself is going to be humbled, and he who humbles himself is going to be exalted. That's how it works at God's table. That's how it works at God's kingdom. You want to be great in the kingdom of God? Then be the servant. Go to the low. Let God move you up. Don't try to clamor to be great in the church. Don't try to clamor to be great. Let God take care of that because that's how it works in His kingdom. Now I want to close. i got about 20 minutes. I want to close this morning with a couple of thoughts on humility because this is what this is all about. God expects us to be humble. 
But then, like I said, I'm always asking questions. What exactly is humility? Somebody said one time, if you say you're humble, then you're probably not, right? Uh, if you talk a lot about humility, you're probably not very, very, very humble. So it's not something that we really discuss a lot, is it? We know we're supposed to be humble, but yet we don't really talk about it a lot. So I want to close this morning with a couple of thoughts on humility. I went out to Google, and I just typed in, what is humility? And, and the first thing that came up was this. This is a definition of humility. A modest or low view of one's own importance. A modest or low view of one's own importance. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. When I saw that, I immediately did not like that definition. Now, I'm going to try to explain something here, and I don't know how I'm going to be able to explain it because I, I just figured I'd just wing it and go with it. There's a big difference between humility and low self-esteem. See, as a father, I've raised two boys, and I don't want, I, I don't want to raise boys with low self-esteem, right? I want my boys to know who they are. I want my boys to be confident. I want my boys to be strong. I, 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 want, I want them to walk through life. Everybody with me? But how do you do that and be humble? See, I don't, I don't want my boys to walk through life all, you know, all meek and, you know, oh, woe is me. I'm just, who wants that? Does everybody see the struggle there? Everybody see the struggle? You don't want children. You don't want Christians. You don't want people to have low self-esteem. I don't want you to have a low view of your own importance. Uh, to me, that, that definition is, is misleading. At the same time, nobody wants to raise children that are proud, that are, think they're better than ever. Are you with me? So how do we... What's, what is biblical humility? Not, not what is the world's humility. I don't care what the definition of humble is in the world. That means nothing to me. I want to know what the Bible says. I want to know what God's kingdom says about humility. So I'm going to give you a couple of scriptures and, we're, and just a couple of thoughts on humility. The first one, 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31. You don't need to turn there, but I want to read this to you. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I want to read another scripture to you, 1 Corinthians 4, 6-7. through 7. Paul's writing, he says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Now listen to what he says. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? What do you have, Paul says, that you didn't receive? What, what talent do you have that you just you didn't receive? In other words, God put that on you. God gave that to you. And he says, if you received it, then why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Okay? Now let me go give you another one. James 4, 13 through 17. James says this, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we're going to go into such a town, we're going to spend a year there, we're going to trade, we're going to make a profit. James says, what's wrong with you? Don't you know? You don't have no idea what tomorrow is going to bring. 
What, what is your life? It's, it's a mist that appears for a little time and then it vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. I, uh, <clears throat> I messed up this morning. I knew I forgot something when I left the house. You ever leave the house, you get in the car and then in your mind you're like, all right, I'm forget- everybody's done that, right? And this morning I knew that. I, um, I meant to bring something from my house, so I'm going to have to describe it to you. I've got, uh, a while back I built a chicken coop, and I found uh, somebody else had an old chicken coop that was probably built in the 50s. I don't know when it was built. It was all falling down. And they told me that I could have the tin, the old tin off of it. So I went down to this old chicken coop, and I took that tin, and I went up to my house, and I used some of it to build a, a chicken coop, and the rest of it, I've actually got a pile of old tin just sitting out uh, out in back in the back side of my property. It's just sitting there. It's all rust. Everybody seen that stuff? It's rusted. It's got nail holes in it. Well, a while back, Kathy comes and says, hey, I want you to, you know, Pinterest is like the worst thing in the world, right? It, it completely messes up my days, right? I've got this, my day planned out, and I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. And then Kathy comes in, and she's walking toward me with that iPad, and I'm like... And I'm like, I'm, I'm trying to walk away. She says, hey, I want you to build something. And, and so what I did is we took a piece of that old tin, all rusted and beat up, and we cut a cross out of it. And we drilled a hole in the top, and it didn't take that long. We drilled a hole in the top, and if you go in my house and you walk in my living room, there on the wall hangs that piece of tin, right in a place of prominence. That's exactly what Jesus did for you. He took you off a trash pile. He took you off a, a place where you just thrown to the side in the back of the property and, and there's no use for anything. There's, you're just trash. You're rubbish. And He takes you and He makes something out of you and He puts you at a place of prominence in His house. And see, every time I go by that cross, I think of that. That's what He did for me. That's what He made out of me. You see, I am important but I'm important because I belong to the Father. Not because of who I am. I don't have anything. I was born with... I I have a gift to teach. I know that. I didn't earn that. I didn't go to school to get that. I didn't work for that. That's a gift. I I don't boast in that. I boast in Him. Because He gave it to me. I I look around and, and, and my job and my family and where I'm... I mean, I was born in this county. I was raised in this county. I was born to Christian parents who raised me in the church. I didn't choose any of that. That was a gift. He gave that to me. I didn't earn that. See, I, I can't boast. I, I look at, I, I'm, I know who I am in Christ. I, I'm not, I don't consider myself walking through life, oh, you know, woe is me. But I am who I am because of Him. Listen, that's exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 9 through 10. Listen to what Paul says. I am the least of the apostles. I'm unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But listen to what Paul says. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Paul's saying, I was, I was a, a piece of rusted out tin with nail holes sitting on a pile that nobody was ever going to use, come off an old chicken coop. I'm the least, and He took me, and He made something out of me, and He made me prominent in the kingdom of God. By the grace of God, I am what I am. 
And Paul says, His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. But it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. That's exactly what Paul is saying. You see, real humility does three things. Number one, it agrees and is glad that God gets all the credit. Real humility walks through life and points to God for everything. He gets the credit for who I am, for what I am, for where I am. Number two, humility agrees and is glad that everything we have is a gift from God. And then finally, humility agrees and is glad that God governs our very steps. You see, the fact is, folks, He chose us and He called us according to His purposes, not who we are. Yeah, I keep going back to that tent. I, it was off an old chicken coop. There was nothing. I mean, the reason I got it is because I was just cheap. I was building a chicken coop. I didn't want to go pay for new stuff, right? And it turns into something different. You see, whatever talents, whatever intelligence, whatever wit, whatever skills, whatever beauty, the list can go on and on. Whatever you have, it comes from God and God alone. And humility, true humility, always finds its boast in that in God and God alone. You see, if we get there, God got us there. If we don't get there, then God willed that we don't get there. It's all about Him. See, humility nestles under the sovereignty of God and finds peace there, finds rest there. That's what true humility does. Now, i got one quick second thought I want to bring up. Now, you want to find the best definition, biblical definition in the Bible of humility, you'll find it in Philippians 2, 3-11. You want to know what humility is? And more important, do you want to know what humility does? You'll find it right here. Philippians 2, 3 through 11 says this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Now, remember that world definition? You, you have a view of yourself, low importance. Remember that? And I said, I don't like that. See, this doesn't say that. This doesn't say you've got to see yourself as this low, meek, oh, everybody with me, beat-down person? doesn't say that at all. What it does say is, is no matter who you are, no matter what gifts and talents God has given you, humility always puts other people first. Always counts other people. They're more significant than, than I am. Look what it says. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourself. Now watch what he says. Which is yours in Christ Jesus. And he goes on to talk about Jesus. You want, you want the best example of humility ever given to, to man? It's right here. Paul says, Who, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. Do you think Jesus saw himself as unimportant? Anybody? He knew who he was. He knew who he was. He said it again, I am. I am. I am. And the Pharisees wanted to kill him for it. He knew who he was. He knew how important he was and what he was doing. But yet he humbled himself to the point of death and obedience and he took the form of a servant. Paul goes on to say this, therefore, and by the way, this is just reiterating because he humbled himself, God does what? 
God exalts him. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee is going to bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, Jesus lived out what he taught in the parable. In the parable he says, in the kingdom of God, humility brings honor. Self-promotion brings shame. He lives it out. He humbles himself, takes on the form of a servant, and the Bible says God has exalted him and given him a name that is above every other name. You see, in the end, if you want to know what humility does, humility serves. It's as clear as a bell. Humility serves. Humility gets down low and does what it takes to lift other people up. Remember what Paul said? Don't just look to your own interests, but look to the interests of others. It looks to the need of others. What do other people need? What can I do to help other, other people? Mark 10, 42 to 44. I'm going to read this one. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it will not be among you. He's talking to the church. He's talking to his followers. He's talking to his disciples. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be servant of all. There it is again. And the kingdom of God doesn't work the way the world works. In the kingdom of God, you want to be first? you want to receive honor from God? Do you want God to say, well done, good and faithful servant? Then you serve. You serve. You serve. See, a humility agrees and is glad that servanthood is true greatness. Again, I'm going to read Luke 14, 11, which is the wrap-up of the parable. Jesus says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Are you serving? Are you serving? Because that's humility. You can try to define it and say all these things, but in the end, truly humble people serve. Okay? So, I, I, in the, again, we, we said it before, humility founds its uh, ground and foundation in God alone. I, wanna, I don't know what you're doing. I want to give you some options here. Okay? It, it, would, it wouldn't be fair to talk about serving, to not get in. I always try to get down to the reality. Here's some places that you can serve in church. And, and by the way, serving is not limited to church. You don't have to just do something here. You can do something out there. But we need small group leaders. You can mentor kids. Listen, in this day and age, kids need help. Families are falling apart. They're separating. They're they're inundated with drug abuse and alcoholism. Go to the schools and look. There are kids everywhere that need a Christian adult to step into their life and mentor them. That, that's everywhere. I, I mean, you, that's got no, you, can, you can start here in this church. You can move to the schools. I don't care how you do it. Find kids in your neighborhood. There are kids who need mentoring. Young adults, teenagers. Again, mentoring. Young married couples. Listen, people are getting married today. They're coming out of families. They're coming out of divorce. And they're coming into marriage. They got no idea how to be a husband. They got no clue how to be a wife. Because it was not modeled. Everybody with me? It was never modeled. They need, they need strong married Christian couples who will come in and say and mentor them through those hard times because it's hard. You can usher here at the church. You can work in media ministries, evangelism, door-to-door. 
Listen, into your neighborhood. It doesn't have to be anything formal. But there's people that need to be told about Jesus. I sat down with someone yesterday and they were telling me that they, they had friends here in Walkala County that came to River of Life. And, for, and years went by and, and they were friends and that, that, those people never invited them to church. Never. Not once. Do you have friends that you're not inviting? Do you have neighbors that you converse with over the fence that you've never invited to church? It's not rocket science, but that's a way to serve. You can be a greeter. You can work in the information booth. You can worship in, uh, work in the worship and music ministries. You can go to the nursery. Right? Everybody hates to say that one. Listen, a while back, Kathy and I volunteered in the nursery, and there's probably not a day's go by that I don't wonder why in the world did I do, why did I do that. Um, but I'm going to tell you why I did it. Because I was reading one day about humility. I was reading one day about humility, and I started thinking about the things that I do. And I'm on the church board, and I, and I teach, and I'm in front of people. And I kept reading this about humility, and it, and it kept saying, get low, get low, get low. And I wanted to make sure, am I doing all this stuff so people can see me and pat me on the back? Everybody with me? I thought, well, i got to do something else. And so I volunteered in the nursery. Okay, so our, our turn comes around, and we go to the nursery. And, and my eyes have been so open. Listen, I'll give you an example. A few weeks ago, there's a little boy in this church. And uh, I was in the nursery on that day, and uh, he came in, and he was crying. He was separated from his mama, and I picked him up, and I rocked him and, and, and soothed him there. And I'm going to tell you, from that day to this, that boy, every time he sees me, will just run up to me and hug me like I'm just the greatest thing in the world. Now, I don't know where that's going to go. Could, could that become an opportunity down the road to mentor? Sure, I don't know. I'm telling you, humility gets low. It's not always looking to be, it's not looking to be patted on the back. That's, that's not why I'm telling you that. The point is, there's opportunities out there. Uh, uh, Ryan's here, working with the youth. If you're interested in that, I'm sure there's opportunities there. If, you're, if, you're, if you want to get interested in mentoring kids, I'm sure Ryan would say, man, I got these guys over here. I got these kids coming in and their parents are going through this. There's opportunities there. You can work with poor. You can work in food banks and, and shelters and do those kind of things. Listen, there's, there's widows out there who don't have a husband anymore, whose family are away, who needs their lawn mowed, who needs things picked up after the hurricane. There's tons of opportunities out there to, to, to visitation, outreach, and the list goes on and on. See, humility looks. It's not about, well, let me find something on that list I can do. No, humility it's just got this heart in it. It's just saying, I'm, I, man, what can I do? You, you can't... The, the, Christianity has to be lived out. It's got to be out there in your everyday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. I see that all the time. They try to separate Christianity from your job. or Christ, no, You can't do that. You can't do that. I'm a Christian. It's who I am every second of every day, of every week of every year. It has to be lived out. Are you serving? Are you serving? Because that's what humility does. Next week, we'll continue in Luke chapter 14, verses 12 through 24. We'll talk about the great banquet. So if you want to read ahead, you can do that. Let's pray.